Bible there, would you like to keep it open at Psalm 95? And as we look at, as we look at this psalm, to help us get into the idea of the structure of how this works, I want you to think of a seesaw. Do you know what a seesaw is? It's this thing that, well, when I was a kid, it was this thing in the park, the big plank of wood that kind of goes up and down. Totally relies on having two people sitting on ends of the seesaw. So um, there need to be people of equal weight. For, so, so, for example, when I uh, sat on one end of the seesaw, my big brothers would jump on the other end. They kind of catapult me off into space. That's what a seesaw is. In England today, where I live, they're kind of total, total rubbish compared to the old-fashioned ones because due to occupational health and safety, they just have these kind of little springy things so kids can't fall off them and hurt themselves. So they're not very fun anymore. But keep the idea of the seesaw in your mind. You have to have two things on the end of a seesaw to make it work. But there's actually many things in life that are like that. So like a sentence needs a subject and an object. A marriage needs a husband and a wife. Harry needs his wand. You need yin with yang. You have double entry bookkeeping. You have all kinds of things that require two things together. And so does worship. What two things does worship need, you're probably asking. What are the two things that make up worship? Well, that's actually what Psalm 95 is all about. What, are the, what elements make up real worship of God? Now, before we get too deep into the whole worship thing, I've got to say that worship is a very slippery word in the Bible. It crops up all over the place, it lurks in dark corners, and, it, and there's never a straightforward, simple definition of what worship means. And uh, I, I guess we often have a problem today that worship in the Bible can be quite different to what we think about worship. So let's just clear, clear the decks for a moment. What is not worship? Well, in the Bible, worship doesn't equal singing songs. It doesn't equal a church service. It's not the way that you address a bishop. It's none of those things. What is worship? Well, worship in the Bible is a way of uh, describing the perfect relationship with God. And the doctrine of worship throughout the Bible describes how we respond to God. In particular, it's how we respond to God because of what he has done for us. Worship is how we respond to God for who he is and what he has done. It's how we respond to God for who he is and what he has done. And that response comes in a whole variety of different ways. So to, to reflect the whole of who we are as human beings. So sometimes the worship response will be the response of obedient service. Sometimes the worship response will be in thanksgiving and praise. And Psalm 95 kind of picks up these two ideas, the two active ingredients of worship, the two things that you have to have in worship to keep it in balance, but which don't really work when you only have one or the other. So you have, we, do the, we have to have the external things. We have to, must have obedient service to God. But then you also have to have the things that go on inside us, our emotions and our affections. And when we grasp that worship is both of these things, our actions and our affections, it starts to make sense of this otherwise quite strange psalm. And, 
as we were reading it, I hope you did notice it was a little bit strange. Because you have one bit which is all about, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. And then you have this other part, which is almost sinister, do not harden your hearts as Israel did in the wilderness or you shall not enter my rest. Now the way to make sense of these two uh, seemingly opposing ideas is to see them balancing on a pivot, the, the middle of the seesaw. And the pivot, you'll, you'll notice, is in verse 6. Come let us worship and kneel before the Lord our Maker. Believe it or not, this one little verse uh, is what makes the whole psalm make sense. So that's kind of the structure. There's the stuff before verse 6, come let us sing for joy to the Lord, which is all about expressing how we feel about God. Then there's the stuff after verse 6, which is all about responding to God in the way that we live, specifically talking about our obedience. And there's the pivot verse, the theme of the psalm, our call to worship God. So the first part, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. These opening verses are calling us to pour out our emotion. The emotion generated by the fact that we are God's saved people. Come let us sing, come let us shout aloud, let us be filled with thanks. Now, I don't, I've been to a lot of evangelical churches around the place and uh, it's not like evangelicals really love pouring out emotion. But if you look in the Bible, you can actually see it over and over again. Emotion is the first immediate response to the saving work of God. It's not something that, that people put on or are forced to do. Godly emotion is always shown in response to the saving work of God. So look how it works here. We sing to the rock of our salvation. We offer thanks to him who first loved us. He who is more powerful than any ruler. He who is the creator of the heights, the depths and the sea and the land. We're meant to get the picture here that God is big. And if you think about it, to be on the receiving end of the work of such a big God and his goodness can only demand but one thing, our thankfulness. In this case, expressed in singing songs of joy. Okay, so what if, you're, what if you don't like singing? Believe it or not, there are people in the world that don't like singing. In the church that I work for, um, it feels like all the staff, apart from myself, all the male staff, all love football more than anything else. And I hate football, I like singing. So the, the, Some of them like both, but there are some that really that, that just don't get the whole singing thing, just like I don't get the whole football thing. Okay, so what if you don't like singing? What if you don't like expressing emotion? Can we just ignore this command to come and sing? Can you brush it off? Can you say, well, I'm, just, I'm not really that kind of person? Um, like I said, I'm from Australia and I've been living in the UK for three years now and I quite uh, like watching the British and seeing how they, uh, see how they relate to each other. Especially, especially where I live in Oxford, the Oxford sort of English person. They're not very big on expressing emotion about things or they like to keep a lid on it. Um, they, don't, they don't like to give away what, they, what they're feeling Particularly when you first meet someone, they take a long time to warm up. And the problem is that I keep doing all these culturally inappropriate things. You might think Australia and England are quite similar, but they're not, I tell you. Um, so in England there's this big thing about 
forming a huge queue to line up for the buses. I can't get that. Or they hate it. Um, so they hate it when you jump queues like in, in the supermarket on the bus. They hate it when you drive on the middle lane in a motorway. They look at you very strangely when you yell at your children in the shops. But the thing is, they don't ever say that to you. What they do is give you this very kind of polite, nice smile, which means that you've just done something totally inappropriate. So you can kind of read what's in their minds. Oh, those Australians. Not very well bred, very uncouth and colonial. Yes. You can tell that that's what's going on in their heads. Um, they actually do have emotion going on underneath, but they're not expressing it. The British way is to keep the lid on the emotion. But all of us, no matter where we are from, uh, do this. Do you remember that movie Shrek and with the description of the onion uh, layer thing? Maybe not. Um, we all have layers of self-protection around us. It's actually, it makes us feel safe when we put up layers to protect us from the people around us, particularly emotional walls. The thing is, God didn't design us to have emotional walls around us. Emotional expression is very much the way that God designed us to be because God made us to be in relationship with him and to be in relationship with other people. The Bible is clear that we are to give God all of ourselves. He made us emotional people not to be suppressed in the way that sin always tempts us to do but so that we can have a deeply loving and fulfilling relationship with him and with, with each other. So what are, what are we meant to do with this? Well, let's say uh, that we're not um, that perfect at expre- expressing emotion in or out of church. Well, God actually helps us. Like I was saying with Andrew earlier, it's one of the reasons that we do have singing in church. Singing helps us to respond emotionally to the gospel. We sing because it helps us to engage with the word of Christ at the level of our hearts. Being emotional about being saved doesn't mean you have to be externally emotional. You don't have to clap and wave and dance or cry if that's not the way that you're wired, even though many Christians do like to do those things. I think at my church in Oxford, we'd be doing very well if we got a few feet tapping uh, along with the music. That, that would be the extent of the emotional uh, externals. But singing helps us to engage our heart as much as we engage our minds with the truth of the gospel. Singing helps us to do that when we meet with other Christians, it trains us to be joyful Christians, to take our joy in Christ out into every other part of our lives. So when you come to church, don't turn your brain off, but don't turn your hearts off either. If anywhere, church is the one place in the whole of our lives where we should be the most genuinely authentic people we can possibly be, the way that God designed us. Church should be the place where we are the most authentic we can be. And if you can, use the songs to help you do that. Sing the truth both in your hearts and in your minds. Okay, well that's the first part of the psalm. Come let us sing. Then we have the second bit, the pivot verse, verse 6. Come let us bow down in worship and kneel before the Lord our Maker, for we are the sheep of his pasture. Like I said, here we get to the heart of the psalm. Singing with our hearts full of thankfulness is wonderful, but on its own it doesn't actually count for all that much. It's actually easy to be emotional about something. Our emotion 
may reflect our real relationship with God, but it also might not reflect a real relationship with God. Our, our proper position before God, as we see here, is on our knees. You see, the word worship here in verse 6, in verse six actually means to prostrate yourselves, to lie down with your face in the dirt before God. So literally, this verse should say something like, Come, bow down, bend and kneel before Yahweh. So the Bible translators are using the word worship here because it implies that when we do that, we are showing God all our honour and respect. When you're lying down before God with your face in the dirt, you are showing him honour. When we sing our thanksgiving, we may well be reflecting how we feel about that but it's the actual physical act of humbling oneself before God that demonstrates the true state of our hearts. That by faith we honour him and give our lives to him in service. Okay, a little slight digression. It's worth knowing that in the Bible, uh, when we think about bowing down before God, uh, the Bible actually takes us on a journey and develops this whole idea. Um, I'm not going to go into the whole journey about bowing down before God except to take you to the end point which you would see in somewhere like uh, Philippians chapter 2 where it says that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth. Every knee will bow to Jesus in heaven and on earth on that last day. And every knee will bow whether willingly or not. Everyone and everything will be forced to worship Jesus. So think about all the people that you know in your lives, your friends, the person that serves you at the shops, your relatives, your teachers, your neighbours, the people that jump in on you in the bus queues in Oxford. All of these people are going to be humbled before Jesus, who first humbled himself to death on a cross. Obviously there's going to be a difference between those who willingly bow before Jesus and those who are forced to be his friends and his enemies. So it's important that when we come to the last part of Psalm 95 that we listen carefully to the warning that is contained here. Let me just sum up where we are. Worship is honouring God as Lord. That's the heart of worship as it is the key to this psalm. Our fundamental attitude towards God must be one of humble respect and as worshipping people we should freely and outwardly express thanks and joy at being saved. So remember the worship seesaw, singing and thanks don't count for anything on their own if it's not accompanied with obedient service that comes from faith. So here's the third point in the psalm, the second half, seeing and not believing. Think about your own, think about your own life for a moment. Think about the things that you don't trust. What don't you trust? I don't know uh, in Malaysia the things that are not trustworthy. I can think of some some things in England I don't find trustworthy. Advertising, Heathrow Airport, I don't trust. Ikea furniture, French cars, Oompa Loompas, the British cricket team, buying things on the internet, Jetstar, bass players, all kinds of things I don't trust. There are hundreds of things I don't trust, actually. Sometimes I've got good reason not to trust them, sometimes I have good reason. But what about when you have a good reason to trust in something, but you reject that? What if there's something that you can really rely on, but you don't? What if you're the kind of person uh, that blindly ignores flawless evidence to trust somebody or something? 
Well, that's the issue that the second half of Psalm 95 is addressing. It was Israel's problem. So verse 8 says, Do not harden your hearts as your fathers did in Meribah, where your fathers tested me, though they had seen my works. Here we are plunging from the dizzy heights of exuberant praise to the ugliness of sinful disobedience. In fact, there are not many places in the Bible that contrast joy and despair so dramatically as this. In short, this part of God's word reminds us that God literally wrote off a whole generation of Israel for their disobedience. And he's quite prepared to do it again. The action that uh, the psalm is referring to is, of course, that story in Exodus where Israel was rescued from Egypt. So shortly after Israel was rescued, they accused God of not, uh, of not caring for them simply because they didn't know where to find water to drink. They were thirsty. Moses described that as a time of testing God. Uh, let me just put that passage in context to help us. Uh, try and imagine the four scenes from Exodus. Scene one, Israel is rescued from Egypt. You have the Red Sea, the Passover lamb, Charlton Heston, Pharaoh, all that kind of stuff happening. That's the big escape, scene one. Scene two, Moses and Israel sing a huge song of thanks and praise. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Scene three, Israel complain that they have nothing to eat in the desert. Scene four, Israel complained they have nothing to drink. Now, was it reasonable of Israel to accuse God of starving them and holding back water when they entered the desert? Well, no, it wasn't reasonable at all because on the page before, God graciously reminds Israel that he provides them with everything that they need. He meets their request for food with the miracle of the manna and the quail. In that case, God said, okay, you've mucked up once, you've questioned me, but let's get on with it. Turn over the page, a couple of days later you get to Meribah, and Israel starts complaining, they've got no water. It's the second muck up, and you start to see that God is starting to get cheesed off. Why is that? Well, God had shown Israel, A, that he had defeated their enemies. He defeated the massive Egyptian army. He had also shown them that with the manna and the quail, he knew how to take care of them. And what's more, Israel had done this big song and dance about how happy they were about God's salvation. But a few moments later, as soon as they get thirsty, what are they doing? Well, they're actually questioning that God even loves them at all. As we know, God is slow to anger and quick to show mercy. Yet on this occasion, I reckon Israel pressed all of God's buttons. They showed that their hearts essentially were rebellious and disobedient which you, read, you see on over and over as you go past this story to the point where God says, okay, I'm going to leave you in the desert to die. Your kids can go on into the promised land, but you guys are going nowhere. The issue for God is that Israel had witnessed the miraculous. They were the only human beings on the planet to know the saving power of Yahweh they were the beneficiaries of the most spectacular rescue in the whole of the Old Testament. They saw signs and wonders which were done for the sole purpose of bringing about their salvation. And yet the second thing that they ever did was to question God. What do I mean by the second thing they ever did? Well, the first thing I just jumped over. 
The first thing that Israel did when they were saved was to sing that incredible song of praise. I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. They sang at the top of their voices, the whole nation. And that song is actually a really important part of the Bible. Sometimes we miss it between the parting of the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments, but that song that Israel sang was the seal on the deal between Israel and God. God saved his people to be his own and Israel in their song responded quite rightly by saying, thank you God, we accept you as as king. But as we see in Psalm 95, the Exodus song legitimates this kind of response to God as being good and proper. To say thank you is of course the right thing to do. To sing thank you to God when you've seen that you've been saved is absolutely right. Saying thank you should always be the first thing that the rescued sinner says. And singing is fantastic because it helps you to say that from the language of the heart. Yet what you see with Israel is that they had no problem singing the song expressing their thanks and praise, yet in their actions they could only show disobedience. I suspect that the song of Israel was sung authentically. That is, they weren't deliberately being hypocritical They were genuinely thankful for what God had just done. Yet their almost immediate failure had shown that there was a problem in their hearts which began a pattern which they never recovered from. And that, I guess, led God to literally abandon the very first generation of those that he had saved. And this is what makes sense of Psalm 95. We start with a song of praise. Just as Israel kicked off their nation with a song, yet Israel had no action to back up its praise. So the writer of Psalm 95 is putting out a big warning. The reference back to the first sin of Israel is a somber reminder that thanks and praise must be accompanied with obedient service, which springs from faith. It's a, and it's the same warning that Jesus gives when he talks about the, with the, the parable of the soils, when he warned those who accept the message with joy but give it up as soon as any pressure comes. So that's Psalm 95 on worship with its two ingredients, the thanks and praise and the warning that thanks and praise must be accompanied by obedient service. But there's actually a little bit more than we, that we can squeeze out of this because as uh, we saw in the second reading this morning, Hebrews in the New Testament actually picks up this psalm and applies it to the Christian church. Um, and particularly the, the, the writer of the Hebrews is addressing this to, to very early Christians, young believers in Christ. The, the point that the writer in the Hebrews is saying is don't mess up like Israel did. Now if you have Hebrews there, you can quickly cha- turn to chapters 3 and 4 as we quickly go through that, just to show how this psalm is applied to the church. In fact, both these chapters 3 and 4 in Hebrews are an essay on how to apply Psalm 95. And I'll just bring out three very brief points. The first point is, what is God's rest? The second is, how does Psalm 95 relate to Christians? And the third is, what's the application to us? So firstly, what is God's rest? Well, Hebrews says, quoting Psalm 95, that they shall never enter my rest. And yet my work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, etc. And again in the passage above he says, They shall never enter my rest. What we see here 
is that the idea of God's rest, that idea of the Sabbath, is much bigger than just one day of the week when all the shops are closed. I don't know if they close here at all, probably not. The Sabbath is much bigger than, than one day of the week. God's rest was the physical promise of the land of Canaan to Israel, the land flowing with milk and honey, which if they did what God asked them to do, would have been paradise on earth. Hebrews says, however, there are still some that are waiting to enter into God's rest. Now, how can some still be waiting to enter into God's rest? There's kind of two options, I guess. One is he's talking about us who are believers, who are still waiting to get to heaven, or he's talking about people who are not yet Christian, or maybe uh, in the context uh, Jewish people who had not yet become Christian. Well, I think, uh, as Hebrew clearly says, that to enter God's rest is only achieved by faith. It has to be that second option, talking about people that are yet to believe. And here's the twist in Hebrews. It's like these unbelievers are in the church or hanging around the church, maybe like people here today, and maybe that, and that, that makes the scenario similar to Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. They benefited from his goodness. They saw his his displays of power, but they didn't put their faith and trust in God. So these people that are being addressed in Hebrews that are yet to enter God's rest, maybe they are experiencing something of the blessings of God by hanging around the church and hanging around God's people. Like Maybe this could be you here today. Maybe you love coming along to this church. Maybe you love the people here. Maybe you love the fellowship. Maybe you love the singing, the food afterwards. Yeah, maybe in your heart you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I really actually believe the whole thing. There's something attractive about it, but I don't know that I believe it. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 says, Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message that they had was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Israel was the church in the Old Testament and a whole generation of them didn't learn how to trust God to be their Lord. So there's this warning, no matter how uncomfortable it is for us who profess faith, who claim to be members of this church, that we are all open to turning away from God, particularly if we let unbelief and disobedience into our hearts. So what is God's rest? It's entering into God's kingdom. How does this apply to us? Well, there are lots of people in the church who come along to church who have not yet come to faith, who are still waiting to enter God's rest. What does Hebrews say in verse, chapter 3, verse 12? It says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we had at first. Note that the responsibility for guarding against unbelief in the church is a corporate responsibility. The language frames it here as we we have come to share in Christ. It is we who must hold firm. And most importantly, we as a group are to encourage each other daily. Do you see what the hugeness of this? We all share in the responsibility of keeping one another going ahead in Christ. We all share the responsibility if we see a brother or sister fall into unbelief or disobedience. 
United we stand, divided we fall. So you might be thinking about one of the, a person in your Bible study group that became a Christian and was full of enthusiasm. But then they started to come along less and less. No one followed them up. It may be that Christian friend that you saw get involved in some kind of ongoing sinful behaviour but you didn't say anything to them about it. Or it could be that person who started a relationship with an unbeliever that took them away from church and eventually away from faith. Or it could be the person that started coming along to this church. They didn't know anyone and they didn't receive any real welcome from the church so they just stopped coming. We all know that pressure to give in to worldliness. Worldliness offers the immediate satisfaction of so many things. But our responsibility is to urge one another on as much as we can. Urge one another on in the faith. Even those that you might think are super strong Christians. I can think in my own life of many strong Christians that I've known, some of whom were key in helping me grow in faith and come to understand Christ, who now no longer believe. Now, there are a thousand different reasons why that happened. So, where do you start when you, when you think about um, the people that have been in church? What, sorry, where do you start with the people here in this church? Well, what do you talk about afterwards? Do you ask people about how they're going in their faith? Do you ask them about how they're going in prayer? Do you ask them about uh, how they are struggling with sin? Do you follow up people that, that no longer come to smack? Do you make a point of following people who have uh, left here to that they settle into another good church, not just for the short term, but for long term. When you move areas and start a new job, these are the easiest times in life for things to slip. And we need to be encouraging one another all the time to stay firm. And I'm the first to say that I'm shocking at doing this. But when the Bible tells us to encourage one another, it's not just, it's not just about us telling uh, nice, warm and fuzzy things to each other to make us feel good about ourselves. Encouragement is about seeing one another grow in Jesus Christ. And the reality is, when you're not growing in Christ, you're going backwards. You know that phrase in Finding Nemo, just keep swimming? Well, we all need to take that attitude to avoid any of us being pulled back into the net of unbelief. And so finally, what is the great sin that both Hebrews and Psalm 95 specifically warn us against? Well, it's this sin of witnessing the mighty work of God, the mighty work of God to save, and yet not respond in faith and obedience. Remember, Israel saw amazing stuff on their way out of Egypt. They sang an amazing song about their rescue, yet they still had no faith. And if you think about it, we've actually witnessed a much bigger thing than that rescue out of Egypt. We have witnessed the cross of Christ. We have seen God become man and take sin upon himself. And so there is no greater tragedy in the Christian church than to witness the cross of Christ and then walk away from it. All of us need to pray continually that happens to nobody here. And we need to pray that we take on that responsibility of carrying, even dragging each other into God's rest. So what is worship? Worship is showing God the rightful honour and respect for who he is and what he has done. 
And how do we show that? Well, it should flow out from us when we express genuine thankfulness and when we live our lives in faithful obedience to him. The sting in the tail with this, with this description of worship is that we need to be scared. Scared that it is all too easy for anyone to witness the work of God and yet not have faith in him. And we can see these responses in different people as you look at the life of Jesus himself. Think of the wise men. They weren't even, they weren't Jews, they weren't God's people. They came to find, they came to find Jesus as a baby and they bowed in worship. They bowed before the baby that was born to be king of the universe. It contrasts that with the leaders of Israel. They sent their Messiah to be killed. God's own people had no worship. They responded with no song, no song of faith, no obedience, no worship. Brothers and sisters, our challenge is to stay firm in the faith, to encourage one another day by day as we push each other along to meet Jesus willingly bowing before him in everything. And then with fear we can come before him and sing with joy to the Lord and shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great and glorious gospel of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have saved us due to nothing that we could contribute to that. We thank you for your graciousness and mercy. Please protect us, we pray. Uh, from the sin of Israel, that that though they witnessed your mighty works, turned away from you. Please help us to be people of genuine worship, uh, people that respond to you in true repentance and obedience and can then express that in songs of joy and thanksgiving. Amen.